0: When somebody says you have cancer, I think the first thing that jumps into your mind is what did I do wrong? You wanna have something to point at, you know, and then then (laughs) for somebody to say, well, science doesn't know what causes blood cancer. Like, whoa, you know? And so you start to really think about, okay, well, it just doesn't happen. You know, there's probably environmental causes. There's probably a lot of the foods I'm eating. And you start to really think about like the stuff you're putting into your body on a daily basis, and and the, for me, that is when I really started to think about food more as you know, uh, healing than sustenance or just you know a way to make a living.
1: Welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where I talk with leaders across the country who are making the world a better, more sustainable place. I'm your host, Connor Gaughan, founder of Consensus Digital Media. And today I'm talking with Steve McHugh, or Chef Steve, as those who know him well call him. From his early days on the family farm to culinary school to some of the best restaurants in New Orleans and then on to Texas, Chef Steve has climbed the restaurant ranks, building an impressive resume. Along the way, he's fed the community amidst Katrina and launched a restaurant while battling cancer. Each place he goes, he builds a restaurant family and a reputation for sustainability. Thanks so much for being here, Chef. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing.
0: I grew up on a on a dairy farm, about 50 acres in uh, Southern Wisconsin. So my parents were both working professionals, but they also used the farm to their advantage because I have six brothers. And it was a way to not only... Keep us fed and and growing, but also a way to keep us out of trouble. Uh, <laughs> so we had a lot of work to do when we were kids, but also like if we were going to goof off and cause mischief, it was going to be on our own property and not like you know in town somewhere. <laughs> at the, right. You know. So and we did. We we got into a lot of mischief. Um. But yeah, I mean, it was just uh, an amazing place to grow up. We had cattle and pigs and chickens and geese and ducks and orchard that my, my dad had planted. And so like we, I learned a lot about food at an early
1: age and you know, still, still learning to this day. I, I would imagine um, in, a, in an environment like that, a big family like that, food plays a pretty important role in just the, all the family, family gatherings, family culture. Tell us about that. I
0: think for my parents, they both grew up you know, my mom grew up very poor. Her dad was a coal miner and, and um, she, he passed away when she was really young. And it was it was always tough on her and her mom. And then for my dad, his, his he grew up on the south side of Chicago. His dad was a firefighter, you know. So I think for them to have this piece of property where they could kind of, you know, reinvent themselves. And I mean, it was just, you know, kind of their way of kind of getting out of, you know, harder times that they grew up under, you know. Sure
1: would do, did either of them have a signature dish that you that sticks with you?
0: Yes, I think they were very uh frugal and you know when you're feeding seven boys. My mom used to make this dish that we used to call taters and dogs and it was literally boiled potatoes with vinegar and sugar and then she would cut up hot dogs and would kind of fold it into these boiled potatoes so they'd be kind of half mashed, half boiled. And it was almost like this fun gruel, but we loved it as kids. And years later, she was like, you know, the first time I ever made that for you boys, it was because we didn't have anything else in the house. And you guys loved it so much that that we would ask for it, you know. And we still, like my brothers <laughs> and I, still joke about taters and dogs. Um, and my dad was always, you know, he was always very resourceful, you know. And, and my frugality comes from him. You know, he wouldn't throw anything away. He would utilize everything. He would you know, he'd figure out a way to stew it, cook it, grind it, turn it into breakfast, turn it into dinner, what, what have you. And yeah, you know, he was always, and, 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 and in his own right, he was always an amazing baker. I used to love when he'd make like cobblers and cornbreads and, and muffins and things like that. Just, you know, that was kind of his forte. I,
1: I know he played an important role in you pursuing culinary school. Can you tell us when you knew or when, when you realized that that was going to be part of your journey?
0: I grew up in a very small town, not surrounded by all kinds of restaurants, you know, and early on had gotten a job washing dishes at a youth camp and then started cooking uh, all through high school. You know, my parents were the kind of parents where once you were 14 and can have a work permit, you were working. Uh, It didn't matter if you were in school, sports, you know, girlfriend, whatever you had going on, you still had to have a job. And, you know, I just kind of gravitated toward kitchens because I wasn't the best student in grade school, high school you know, kind of struggled a little bit. You know, I kind of fell in love with kitchens because it was, you know, like I like to say, you know, a bunch of knuckleheads like me kind of all doing something really cool together. And and it, it just felt, you know, it was so rewarding, right? And I tried to go to college. I tried to study music in college and uh, did a year of that and just, just was not for me. It wasn't something I just excelled at. I, did, I enjoyed playing music. I enjoyed listening to music. I did not enjoy studying theory and history and all these things, right? So when I left college, I was kind of went back into kitchens and I really was just kind of spinning my wheels. I was working like three jobs, just, just trying to, you know, figure it out. And my dad had said, you know, have you ever thought about going to culinary school? And that really was the first time that I even thought about that as an option. Like I just... You know, I was like, well, you know, I'm thinking to myself, isn't that where like great chefs go to learn, you know, and I'm just kind of a short order cook working in diners and bars, you know, and um, but he really believed that, you know, this was something I wanted to do. And so we, him and I, along with my mom, we fill out applications and started applying to culinary schools around the country and uh, got accepted at the CIA and, you know, haven't looked back since. That's
1: awesome. So you you go to the CIA and just to clarify, be the, the Culinary Institute and not for people in DC, right, <laughs> the right. farm down the block. <laughs> um, how did that prepare you for your culinary career?
0: When I went to the CIA, obviously, um, if you're if you're not familiar, they they break everyone down, basically that you know nothing, which was which was great, um, because I was 19 years old, and I'm I'm in there with. 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, um, people who've been in the business a long time, people who'd worked in hotels, people from New York City, people from, you know, California. And here, you know, small town Wisconsin, you know, a town of 1,200 people when I left. Um, it was important because I didn't have kind of the base that a lot of my fellow students had. And so I, it, what was amazing about it was they, they break you down Here's how you're going to learn how to chop an onion. Here's how you're going to make a chicken stock. Here's what you're going to do with that chicken stock. You're going to turn it into this sauce. And it just slowly builds from there, right, throughout your time there. Um, And I'll be honest with you, you know, I'm 19 years old. And for the first time in kind of my education as a human, felt like I was excelling at something. Felt like... Uh, wow, I'm, I'm right there with my classmates. I'm right there. You know, maybe I don't understand this, but I understand this and, um, and, and I'm going to learn it. And I just, you know, I just started eating it up. I was studying all the time and, and, you know, loved going to class because I knew every day was going to be different. You know, it's funny because I had, uh, I remember there's a class called AM cookery and it was all about breakfast. And I remember every day, you know, my classmates asking me if I would work the egg station because that's what I did before I went to culinary school. Like I made omelets and cooked eggs in diners, you know, and I just remember like my teacher coming to me and saying, hey, the president of the university is having a meeting in his office tomorrow and wants somebody to do omelets for him and his guests. You know, I need you to go. And it was just like, whoa, like even the simplest thing, like cooking eggs, you realize that, you know, you're good at something and you can really build on that. And it was a a great feeling. I mean, I really enjoyed it.
1: So, so you finished school, and where'd you end up?
0: I ended up in New Orleans. Um, You know, halfway through culinary school, they send you on what they call an externship, Um, kind of an internship, but outside. You know, and um, you can go anywhere you want as long as it's an approved site. You can go anywhere in the world, and um, it was interesting to me because a lot of my friends are like. You know, I'm going back to Jersey. I'm going back to Ohio. I'm going back to New York. I'm going back to you know Connecticut where I used to work. And I was like, eh, I don't want to go back to Wisconsin. I was like, you know, what am I going to learn, right? Um, and I had a good friend of mine there that, you know, he said, you should. Why don't you check out New Orleans? You know, I used to. I, I went to. I went to college there. You know, it's a great city, and it's one of the you know the truest American cuisines you're ever going to find. I was like, you know, that sounds really cool. Uh, I started applying at places there and i had never worked in a hotel before. So I was playing at a lot of hotels because um, I just wanted to kind of experience that. And I ended up working at the uh, Hilton on Poydras, which is at the time it was like the largest hotel in the South. It was thousands of rooms. I don't remember how big, um, huge kitchens. I mean, just football field kitchens, uh, kitchens on different levels and buffets and banquets. And I mean, it was just, it was so cool. And and I was Fundamentally, doing things like buffets and banquets and carving stations and and all of these things, but at the same time, the ingredients and the food was so different—turtle soup, étouffées, jambalaya, all these things. So that whole the ingredient side of things were so different, but also the the techniques were very different. I mean, it was just a an eye opening experience. And when I finished that, I couldn't wait to finish school and get back down there. And I went back
1: as soon as I graduated. All right, let's see if I can summarize your CV for folks a bit, so we can get to the main entree. You start at Maison de Pie as a line cook under Dominique McKay. You leave the line cooks at Metro Bistro. Then you make your way to Dickie Brennan Steakhouse. That name, by the way, I love it. As a saussier and then as the head butcher, which I imagine is a very big job at a steakhouse. Then you move on to sous chef at Storybill. That's where you meet your wife. Then you're promoted to chef de cuisine at Baco. You make a big bet and head to the casino tables to become the head chef at a steakhouse at a casino. But then you return to your creative restaurant roots as chef de cuisine at August and eventually take on a more managerial role as the head chef for that restaurant group with locations all over the South, BRG. Okay, so that's wet our appetite. Now, you're about to take this big leap in entrepreneurship, and that's what I want to talk about a little bit more. You're in San Antonio, opening a new restaurant for that corporate entity, but what was it at that moment that prepared you or empowered you to take the leap into running your own restaurant?
0: Right before we moved, our goal was to get there, kind of get this restaurant open, my wife and I thought, "Eh, we might be there a year, might be there two years. But, you know, I've got a great job. I'm doing really well. And about, oh, I'd say two or three months before we moved, I was diagnosed with blood cancer. And there was a a massive tumor in my chest. And uh, I was diagnosed with lymphoma. You know, I remember like, I didn't know idea what lymphoma was. I didn't know your blood could get cancer. I was just like, very naive to all that. And so the thought process at first, my wife and I were like, "Well, maybe we shouldn't move." Um, and I had an amazing doctor there who said, uh, "You know, I quote, I've quoted him a lot, but you know, he said, 'I don't remember anybody telling you to stop living your life.'" And he, um, it really empowered me to say, like, "Okay, this this man really feels like I can beat this. I think I can beat this." He got, he got me in touch with an amazing oncologist here in um, San Antonio, Dr. Roger Lyons. And uh, so I did two treatments, um, in, in New Orleans and I did six more here when I got here. And, um, so about eight or nine months later, um, I'd finished treatments and trying to, you know, go through, going through that and trying to open a restaurant and do all the hiring and meet new farmers, you know, meet new vendors, new providers, all of that, set up fish accounts, um, you know it was stressful, um but I had a job to do right and and like I said, you know, kind of like Katrina, I could sit at home and be sad on my couch or I could just you know get my ass up and go to work and and kind of get on with life and and it's so funny' i um i I interviewed all through that summer, it was two thousand ten and Course, you know, going through treatments, I was bald headed, you know, no eyebrows, no nothing. You know, I'm interviewing people. And then when we opened the restaurant, <laughs> there were so many employees, you know, at, at orientation were like, oh, you grew your hair back, it looks good, you know. And they, you know, none of them had any idea that I was, you know, because it wasn't me to just be like, oh, by the way, you know, I'm sick. And it would have just scared them. It was such a um a life-changing moment, one that was I don't think I was ever like scared during Katrina, but I think this was something I was scared of. And when you when when you get scared like that, you start to kind of think about where you want to be—not uh, necessarily the legacy, but you know uh, how do you want to live your life—and um, that was when my wife and I started having the conversations about maybe uh, going off and opening our own restaurant.
1: I'm curious because I've found over the last few years, both for myself, but also for a lot of entrepreneurs that I've been spoken with, that. Between COVID nineteen, between just just the world we lived in for the last few years, there yeah. was uh, a lot of us kind of got to a point of a reminder of our mortality.
0: Sylvie and I would often comment that the entire world's going through Katrina uh, when COVID hit. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, C- Katrina was such a little microcosm of you know a region, and 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 I think we were we were very well equipped to run a restaurant through the early parts of the pandemic because we knew what it was going to take to survive. We knew yeah. we were going to have to really scrimp and save. And, and, you know, <laughs> we got into that dry storage, we got into our freezers, we got into everything and, and started figuring out how to write a menu. And we did that for three months, um, doing curbside. And every day the menu was a little bit different. You know, it was like, Oh, we had lamb yeah. chops yesterday and today we've got wild boar. You know, I'm just pulling stuff out of the freezer and making up menus. Right. And, and um, and I think too, one of the one of the things that really helped us out a lot is we probably, you know, we have a large uh, curing case in our restaurant full of charcuterie, and we just dwindled it down over over time. And you yeah, know, not, not everybody has, you know, twenty thousand dollars worth of charcuterie hanging around their restaurant that they can just survive on if they need to. Um, and and that's really what charcuterie was a couple thousand years ago was survival. You know,
1: it's it's so funny because I think a restaurant is a business obviously yeah but it's so unique in that if a business pops up in a new city it, it it you know an entrepreneur is running a new business i don't think a restaurant has that same uh ease of entry into a market i feel like <laughs> restaurants are so so core to the communities that they're in there's such a i mean the minute you open a restaurant in a city or a community it's it's going to become a part of the flavor of that city it's going to represent the city and the people and the, and the community itself and so um, it, it's such a opportunity, a gift, but also I suspect an added challenge uh, and responsibility to take on.
0: Yeah, I think uh, especially when we opened here, I mean, my wife and I were very conscious of that fact that you know we weren't going to be these hotshots from New Orleans who are going to come put a restaurant here and and you know show you how what good dining is and what good food is, right? Of course, we're going to take all those lessons learned. But you know, if you look at our menu here at Cured, it is strewn about with South Texas ingredients, techniques, um, and you know, might have uh, you know a bit of New Orleans flair, or it might have uh, you know a bit of our background. But it's very much a South Texas restaurant, and, and that was that that was on purpose from day one. We we were not going to try to shove something down the throats of the the good folks here in San Antonio who, you know, just like any great community have their own style, have their own sense of, uh, of, of how a restaurant works. And, and, you know, uh, you know, you go to Austin and you can, you can get a reservation damn near till midnight. Well, in San Antonio folks like to eat a little bit sooner and get home a little sooner. And, you know, streets are a little bit quieter around 11 o'clock at night and, you know, it's it's very much a family town, and so you've got to really understand your market. And, and, and like I said, that from day one was was always our goal was to to really embrace ourselves and,
1: and become a part of this community. How do you think about kind of the, the overall role of local in, in the food scene?
0: It's definitely something I developed in New Orleans, but I was blown away, like, moving to Texas. And one, the the diversity of ingredients, an eight-hour drive away is so much different. You know, uh, we weren't eating prickly pears and cactus paddles in New Orleans, you know. Uh, you know, we we would have to get quail shipped in. I've got quail farms right down the road, you know. Um, you know, I have farmers that, that just come and drop stuff off. They don't even have to, you know, they don't, they don't even have to call. They know we're going to take it. I walked in the kitchen the other day and there was, you know, uh, nine, you know, grocery plastic bags full of spinach on the counter. And I looked at my chef and I said, Oh, where'd this come from? Oh, Miss Laurie dropped them all. I'm like, this is great. What are we going to do with them? And I love that because they know, they know who we are. We know who they are. You know, our job isn't to go to them and say, we want tomatoes. Our job is to say, what are you growing? What are you feeling cool? What, you know, what are you, what are you feeling fun about this year? You know, Oh, I think I'm gonna put some parsnips in or some ground cherries, or I'm going to do this or that. It's like great, let's, let's do it. We'll work with it. You know and that's also separates them from like, you know, the nine other produce vendors at a farmer's market, right. That that are all selling eggplant, tomatoes, and bell peppers, you know? So they, I think farmers have always known this is a two way street. I think it's taken chefs a long time to figure that out. And I think it's a lot because we've always had this ability to pick up the phone and order whatever we want. And, and that for me has changed in the last, you know, 15 years, 16 years.
1: Well, I feel like it's making its way to consumers, right? Cuz that's the next layer, both both in a restaurant but also at home that I think many began to conflate organic with fresh or local right. or and so like, oh, I'm it's it's an organic, you know, whatever. And I know you've talked about this a lot. Like, who cares if it's organic if it if it was flown, you know, multiple days through multiple yeah. continents to get to you? Like, what
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, an organic, you know, in the beginning was, you know, a farmer's term, a rancher's term, right? And they, they kind of started the movement and adopted it. And it wasn't until the U.S. government got involved and said, okay, you know, we you can't say it's organic unless you have this seal of approval from this, you know, organization. And, and then once you do that, then, you know, everybody's involved, right? And, and it's true. You know, it's like, we talk about carbon footprint all the time. And it's like, if it's an organic strawberry from, you know, California, and it's sitting here on My counter at my restaurant. I got to think to myself, well, how the hell did it get here? What was it packed in? Plastic container in a you know wax corrugated box that probably sat on a diesel truck or or even on a train in a refrigerated car. You know, burning emissions and and all of these things. And you're like, oh wow, it's organic. You know, Um, it's it's really kind of crazy. And it it doesn't taste good. I think you're right. Independent restaurants are trendsetters in our in 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 this business. you don't see something pop up on, you know, Applebee's menu that they invented. It's come from
1: somewhere else. Give us a little more just in general on how do you look at the world and think about preservation for, and conservation for the next generation?
0: I, I think a lot of that for me started when I got sick because I, you know, you start to go down this um, this rabbit hole of, you know, well... Let me back up. When when somebody says you have cancer, I think the first thing that jumps into your mind is what did I do wrong? You want to have something to point at, you know, and then, and then <laughs> to, for somebody to say, well, science doesn't know what causes blood cancer. Like, well, whoa, you know? And so you start to really think about, okay, well, it just doesn't happen. You know, there's probably environmental causes. There's probably a lot of the foods I'm eating. And you start to really think about like the stuff you're putting into your body, Uh, on a daily basis. And, and for me, that is when I really started to think about food more as, you know, uh, healing than sustenance or just, you know, a way to make a living. And so I start to think about, you know, studying just, you know, everything from, you know, heirloom corns to vegetables to, you know, heritage breed cattle and pigs that, you know, should be grown in certain areas and not in certain areas and, and how, you know, animals affect our environment and, and all of those things, right? And I start to really be conscious of those things, especially when building a menu. And the closer we can keep it to home, the closer we can really keep an eye on things, right? And, you know, I was like, oh, I want John Dory from across the world. Well, you know, good luck trying to figure out where it came from. And, and maybe seafood, you know, it's it's a lot easier to track, but let's just say it's like some crazy Brazilian nut or, a, you know, a, a Mediterranean vegetable or whatever, something you can only find. It's like, I don't know who grew it. I don't know who raised it. Cool. It's great that it's sitting here in my restaurant and I'm the only one in San Antonio that has them. But is that really that important? Or is it more important to kind of, you know, be a steward to to your land and and, and to your
1: customers and, and give them the, the right ingredients? I want to hear a little bit about the new project or to the extent you're talking about it. I want to hear a little about it because uh, I get to Austin a fair amount. So I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, we... Um, we,
0: we opened, uh, Landrace almost two years ago now at the Thompson, uh, here in San Antonio. And Landrace is all the things we've been talking about, right? It's all South Texas. It's all, you know, things that are grown in place because of place and pretty good working relationship with Hyatt. And there's a, a ownership group building this hotel out of Denver and they approached us about doing, um, uh, a Hyatt in Austin and wanted to know if, we would be the food and beverage operators for the hotel. It's like, this is a huge step for us, right? I mean, we a little tiny company, you know, own one restaurant, consult for another, and all of a sudden now, like, boom, we're going to run an entire F&B operation in another city in a hotel. Um, so it's a really exciting project for us. We've really built up some uh, super strong players over the last nine years. You know, our general manager here was promoted to uh, director of operations to go on and take on this project. One of our one of our managers is an AGM there. One of my chefs, longtime chefs, we made the chef to cuisine. He moved to Austin. I mean, I like to say that you grow because of people, you don't grow because of people, right? I see chefs in restaurants that that blow up, you know, five, six, all of a sudden they got nine units and then they're just crumbling because they don't have the, they don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the people. Yeah. And, and I really credit Sylvia, my wife and my partner, because she's very good at kind of saying, I don't know if we can pull that off because we get options. We get opportunities all the time presented to us. And it's like, eh, I don't know if that's something we want to get into it. And, and I look back years later and go, man, I'm so glad we didn't do that project. That would have been a mess, yeah. you know? So with that, with that project, we're doing a restaurant on the first floor of the hotel. It's right next to the state and the Paramount theater on Congress and 8 Yeah. Um, going to be a great spot for folks heading to the show or after the show. And uh, that's going to be called luminaire. That is a uh, kind of a, a uh a nod to the to the folks who used to run the lights in the theaters back in the day the luminaires um and really we just want to put a spotlight on food we're we're going very spanish heavy on our menu but a lot of charcuterie a lot of house made house cured meats again we're also going to be running a terrace bar on the eighth floor it's kind of a hotel check-in bar but the terrace is out over congress you can see the capitol on one side 6th street i mean you can just kind of feel the energy that's called las beses and that is uh, that means encore uh, so we're really trying to create a space for like folks to, you know, hang out and party after a show, after, you know, comedy, concert, what have you. Uh, and then we'll also be doing the banquets and uh, uh room service for the hotel as well. So we're excited about some of the things we have planned and, and proposed. And and hopefully if all goes well, we're just finishing up construction. We're looking at February 1st uh, for
1: opening. Amazing. I can't wait to follow it. I think <laughs> you said one, one thing I want to tease out of that, which I think is actually really interesting and You talk about, you know, your team there's, uh, you've you've built up a great team over the last nine years, and that's what helps entrepreneurs in the long run succeed, or sometimes um, is their downfall. (laughs) I just want to hear a little bit about how how you look at facilitating and empowering and growing your team, uh, and kind of how you view that vis-a-vis, you know, as you talked about. You come from a, a family where... It, family was really important and, and eating around eating was really important. So I feel like there might be an intersection there that we could explore.
0: You know, I'm a big proponent of pushing people out of their comfort zone in a good way, right? And I, I, I want people to grow. And I love, you know, promoting a cook to sous chef, sous chef to, a, you know, a CDC or a cook to a butcher, you know, um, and and watching them grow and blossom. You know, my current butcher that's working with us right now came to us as kind of a line cook, prep cook. And I just said, well, here's what I need. I need somebody who can cut. And and he's like, I've made sausages before. And I was like, perfect. You know, and it's like your parents kind of always believed in you before you did kind of growing up. And, and I love kind of taking that approach with my team and just saying, I know you can do this. I know what you're capable of. And even when they're not so sure about stepping into that sous chef role or that floor manager role, you know, it's great to see them blossom. And I think I have an amazing team of folks that, Aren't afraid to learn from others. Um, there's no, there's no huge egos. They just don't really fit. Some restaurants they fit. <clears throat> they just don't fit around here. Um, and this, this project in Austin. I'm, you know, I don't want it to be, you know, an entire team of cured slash San Antonio people. Uh, we did hire an executive chef of the hotel who's born and raised Austin. Uh, has worked uh, some of the some of the finer restaurants in Austin, but has also worked a few country clubs and hotel gigs. And so it has kind of this this all-around approach of like, he knows ho- hotels work, but he also understands like fine dining. Uh, sometimes that can get lost in hotels, right? And so, you know, I'm excited about him, you know, coming forward and saying, oh, you got to meet this farmer that I've worked with over the years. He's amazing. I'm like, cool, let's do it. You know, like I, I want to hear all about it, you know, and, and allowing him to grow and create his own kind of legacy there as well. It doesn't have to always be like about me. Right. I want I want to empower people so that like when people walk in here, you know, and and go, hey, where's Winnie at? I want to talk to her about the wine list. You know, I'm great. Oh, yeah. Good to see you, too. You know, it's like I love it. And uh, my director of ops who we promoted, uh, he's taken so much pride in here and our service, not just front of the house, but back of the house. that That I loved when people this would happen at least once a week, people would come in and they would think he was the owner. Because he took that much care and that much effort into making sure that everybody had a great time, and I want that for everybody, right? Um, there's the old saying, "Treat it like you own it, and someday you will." I want that for all of them. I want, you know, 50 years from now, San Antonio, Austin, wherever, like people telling stories about how they when they worked at here. You know, I think it's
1: it, it, it's it's a it's a fun it's a fun thing to think about. Yeah. So we'll end on kind of a final thought, a final question, which is one I ask everybody um, to give me their best advice for folks to, to keep hope, keep hopeful. How do you get up every morning excited to go do what you do? How do you encourage others to uh, get out there and live their best life?
0: It's tough. You know, I think we live in a time where money can be short. There's a lot of bills out there. And I think about the fact, like, I look at my bills now compared to like 20 years ago. I had like four, you know, I had like rent, car, you know, phone bill, you know, and now it's just like, it just seems like there's, there's so much. And, you know, I've always been very conscious about trying to work somewhere where I was growing because there's an end game, right? There's an end goal. And every job I ever had, I didn't want to be a line cook the rest of my life. I didn't want to be a sous chef. I just, I wanted to keep learning and pushing myself. And I still am, you know, I'm almost 50 and I'm still pushing myself to new boundaries. Oh, I'm gonna go open a restaurant in Austin. Oh, I'm gonna write a book. Oh, I'm gonna do, you know, I'm gonna try and do all these things. And I think those are the things that make me happy. I always tell people I could easily go find another job and make a lot of money. I know that. I could probably, you know, be a plumber and make more than I make right now. Uh, and I actually I actually really like doing plumbing and electrical work on my house. It's like one of the things I love doing, right? But I don't think I want to do it every day. And that's nothing against plumbers. I think, you know, you find something that makes you happy, um, you're going to excel and you're going to do well. And, and even if I don't have every opportunity for you, you come here, you're going to learn You might learn how to, you know, make charcuterie or whatever. You're going to take that to the next level and you're going to continue to grow. And my job isn't to make other people's lives harder. I have staff that struggles. I have staff that have uh, housing issues. I have staff that they don't have their own cars. I have staff that might go to the food bank every now and then. And I, I do the best I can to take care of them and Um, so it's, it's not my job to, to make their lives harder. I, you know, I do enjoy pushing people, like I said, out of their comfort zones, but it's only because I know that they can do it. Um, everyone's had troubles, you know, everyone's had difficult spots in their lives. And it's, like I said, my wife and I, we, we honestly, we always just say it's, it's not our job to, to, to knock them down. It's our job to kind of help pick them up and, and give them a safe place to come and get away from their troubles for eight hours.
1: Awesome. Um, thank you so much again for doing this it's really been a lot of fun we're just so grateful that you took the time so thank you so much
0: thank y'all, I appreciate it so much
1: huge thanks to Chef Steve for today's conversation and now I'm hungry Consensus and Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan the episode is produced by Will Gatchel and Chandler Bramstead executive produced by me with editing from reasonable volume Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform.